Hi, this is Philip Galanis from the New York from the New York Times and for Leonard Lopate. From ancient paths to modern hiking trails, human beings have always looked for a way to bring order to the wilderness. On today's Please Explain, we're talking about trails, how they're created, and how they connect us. With Robert Moore, who began writing his book on trails and exploration while through hiking the Appalachian Trail in 2009. It's published by Simon & Schuster, and I'm very happy that it's brought Robert Moore to this week's Please Explain. And we also invite you to join the conversation. If you have a question or comment about trails or hiking, please call us on 212-433-9692 or write to us on wnyc.org or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Philip. My pleasure. You start the book as a 10-year-old at sleepaway camp, something I think everyone can, almost everyone can identify with, on your first hike. Was it love at first trail for you? It was most certainly not love at first trail for me, uh, as I think it is for most kids who go on their very first hike. It's not a whole lot of fun, right? It's it's hard. It's grueling. It's painful. It's slow. It seemed like uh, work to me or drudgery. It, It was awful. Yeah, but... Over time, I, I learned to enjoy it. It was, it was a slow process, but it, probably about six or seven years before I really loved backpacking. And what did you – And uh, I, I, I'm mystified by the, yeah, I liked it okay, to all of a sudden you're going on a 2,000-mile trail down the – 2,000-mile hike on the Appalachian Trail. How did you get from like to love – yeah, I, I I don't really know. Looking back, I think originally it was uh, I I fell in love with being outdoors, with being in the wilderness, and I loved being on top of mountains. And so, going backpacking was a good way to get there. And and just the experience of getting to the mountaintop, uh, I did not enjoy. It was miserable, but the feeling of being on top of a mountain is great, right? I think everyone can appreciate that. And as I did it over more time, I, I got to the point where I, the entire experience was enjoyable. And in fact, I was doing other things. I was studying Buddhism and learning about walking meditation and learning to enjoy things that are a little bit more slow and contemplative. And I think by the time I went, I was uh, I maybe 22 or 23 when I went to go hike at Appalachian Trail, I'd learned to appreciate every step of the way, even when it was hard. And so I was looking forward to being alone in the woods for five months. I am a very minor league hiker, but the meditative part of it is incredibly powerful to me. It's maybe the place where I feel most myself. Do you have that sense of the real you coming out when nobody can see you? Yeah, I think I do. Uh, There's something about being outside of society and society's norms that makes you feel liberated. You know, uh, growing up, I'm I'm gay. And as a kid, I think I felt uh, I I, I was, 
you know, in some ways, you're, 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 you always feel hedged in, right? Right. When you're growing up, and, and you don't feel that when you're in the woods. There are no Lots of different costumes for us to wear. Right, yeah, and there are no norms, and it's, you're free. I mean, that's, it, it is really a feeling of, of freedom and uh, of possibility, and so I, I think I always cherish that, yeah. That's great. Tell, for listeners who might not be aware, tell us what the Appalachian Trail is. Well, the Appalachian Trail is a two thousand, a little bit more than two thousand mile trail. The the mileage changes year to year, but it was uh, created in the nineteen twenties. It was first envisioned by a guy named Benton Mackay, and it has a really interesting history. It was a really a kind of utopian project originally. He'd envisioned it as a way to preserve the wilderness from all up and down the East Coast, so that people on the uh, in the major cities of the East Coast would have somewhere to go and experience the wilderness. Because back then, in the nineteen twenties, almost all the national parks were out west. So to create this, and he envisioned it as much more than just a trail. There were going to be work camps. There were going to be sort of sanatoriums. He had all of these grand plans. But over time, as it got built, those things all got winnowed away. And what you were left with was the the hiking trail, which was his original vision, stretching from Georgia to Maine. Georgia to Maine. Think about that for a second. Wow. You write in the book, its impossibility became precisely its appeal. Uh, which uh, I think is a, a wonderful. Uh, it's a wonderful guiding. Uh, it's a wonderful guiding spirit. What was the most challenging part of the the experience to you? I think any through hiker would say, well, there were two. I mean, the, the first and foremost thing is just you have to keep going. That's. It's not hard to go for. I mean, it's hard to go for a hike for five days. But there's no real substantive difference between five days and five months. It's just you have to keep waking up morning after morning and putting your wet boots back on. And that was a very rainy year for us. It was one of the rainiest years on record. So they were literally wet boots, sometimes frozen solid. You'd have to pull them back on, and your feet would hurt, and you'd have to get started again. And you knew a lot of the time, you know, walking through New Jersey or Connecticut when you've been on the trail for three or four months – you, you've already seen all you're kind of going to see until you get up to New Hampshire and Maine and you get back into the really stunning, you know, scenic vistas again. So it's it's just perseverance. And honestly, that is a skill, I think, that carried me through with this book as well. You know, it took me five months to yeah. hike the Appalachian Trail. It took me seven years to write the book. Well, so. the, the research that goes into this book is is phenomenal. And so you're, you're so I understand what you're saying about the parallels in terms of fortitude. Um, if you were going to give someone who wanted to uh, not spend five years researching a book, uh, seven years, but rather go for five months on the Appalachian Trail, what would the advice, what's the, what's the best piece of advice you could give someone? Um, people ask me this all the time, and it's a tough one because people have different. They, there's a saying on the Appalachian Trail, which is "hike your own hike." You know, people like to do things their own way, and oftentimes you'll you'll get yourself into trouble if you make recommendations, and then it turns out that person doesn't want something. But I have a couple of easy ones. One is uh, obviously keep your backpack as light as possible. Don't wear heavy heavy leather hiking boots. That's something that I grew up doing, and I think most people grow up doing. And when you get on the Appalachian yeah. Trail, it's ridiculous. You don't need them. They get wet anyway, and then they're heavier. Just wear running shoes or trail runners. As long as you keep your backpack light, it's fine. And then the, the last thing is try and eat healthy food. This is the hardest thing is that hikers just eat garbage. We, we eat because you grab whatever you can get at the local grocery store, and it, you want it to be light and calorie-dense. So it's a lot of Pop-Tarts. It's a lot of ramen noodles. And, and, and I've seen it happen to hikers three or four 
months into the trail where they start getting uh, not just emaciated, but they, they can't get the energy up to even walk anymore. Right. So what I did is I cooked a lot of brown rice and quinoa and all that good stuff, and I dried it at home, and then I mailed it to myself so I could mix it into my meals and just have some good, you know, some dried pasta sauce, whatever, and that you could rehydrate. <sighs> I, I don't think I've heard the word Pop-Tart in a really long time. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for reminding me of, of, of them. Um, let's talk about trails for a second, because you, you've, you've got a meditation on trails that is r- really rewarding. I, I, I want to start with something that I, uh, with my own bias, which you take up right away in the book, are, are human beings at the tippity top of the uh, food chain or somewhere near the top of the food chain the best trail makers i don't think so no um well we are we are in some ways we are we're certainly the most technically adept there's no animal in the animal kingdom that makes trails like we do but i think that in terms of scope and in terms of uh sort of just natural wisdom i think that elephants would probably win that contest their bodies are just incredibly engineered for building trails and they have these very very powerful sense organs which allow them to predict what's you know if there's a body of water or if there's a thunderstorm things they may want to reach uh they have and and oftentimes you'll find that our roads will follow elephant trails uh in various places throughout the world in terms of efficiency it's got to be ants Uh, ants create these pheromone trail networks which are profoundly uh, profoundly efficient, just incredible. They're very uh, elastic. They evaporate and then they change. They are able to create an ever-shifting map of where the food is and where the, the anthill is that is continually updating. And that's something that we have only really been able to do now in the electronic age. Right. Tell, tell us about desire lines and how we get from point A to point B, um, because it's not necessarily the quickest way. Is no, it? This is a really interesting topic, and it's something I've actually been delving into this week. I was out talking to some people uh, from the Parks Department and uh, from a conservancy here in New York about desire lines. So for people who don't know, desire lines are those paths that form across city parks. You'll often find you know, a, a quadrangle, and then there will be a diagonal trail that's kind of wending across the grass. And a lot of landscape architects don't like them. They think they look ugly. And it's also a way, it it kind of is highlighting the flaws in their design because people are saying, I don't want to walk where you've laid out the path. I want to walk over here. Uh, And so there's a whole philosophy of paving the desire lines. Some people believe you should pave the desire lines, but other places you want to people, you know, we want to get rid of them. So the, And, and why would you want to get rid of them? For a couple of reasons. One, they don't think they look nice. And also, if it is near a body of water, it could be creating erosion. There there are a couple of oh, that's a, uh, that's a good e- ecological problems with them. Yeah, and so – or they'll just be too profuse. So this is really fascinating. The other day I was out uh, with this, this, this group of people who have been studying all of the desire lines. They created a map of all the desire lines in New York City, 200 miles of them. And they, they, we went up into uh, the Bronx. They were showing me these desire lines that had formed. And most of them are people just wanting to get from A to B more quickly. But some of them are for other reasons. Sometimes people want to go off into the woods to go party at night. Um, sometimes they'll want to go to ride an ATV. And some of them are even people uh, cruising. You know, they, they're, they're all for, uh, there are a lot of forms of desire is the point. It's not always just expediency. That's... That is kind of extraordinary and certainly makes me forgive my dog who always creates a desire line on the way to the dog run at the park. Um, When you were talking just then, I thought, 
I wonder how on earth Robert finds people who are mapping all the desire lines in New York City. How? How, how did you meet, meet these people? Well, the incredible Why thing— Why don't I know them? <laughs> well, the thing about this book is it's really, uh, it's really a concatenation of sources. So I would talk to one person, and that person would lead me to the next, and that person would lead me to the next. And it was really incredible in that way to see how there's all these various bodies of knowledge. You know, from studying ant trails, I met someone who was going out to the Six Flags Adventure Park in New Jersey and studying uh, herd ungulates, you know, African herd animals. So I went from ants directly over to studying zebras and gazelles. And like that, from person to person, they would lead me to someone else. They'd say, hey, I know a guy who's mapping all of the Cherokee trails in North Carolina. Or I know someone who's an incredible bow hunter, you know, who, who hunts deer. Uh, using a bow and arrow, and uh, in that way, the you, if you read the book carefully, you can see all these oh, various absolutely. threads. Absolutely, it's a relay people. race yeah. <laughs> with you as the baton between these all these people. T- tell us about some of the earliest uh, trail followers in the animal kingdom. Um, what are slime trails? An yeah. attractive word, if ever I've heard one. <laughs> slime trail. Yeah, and so they're the the earliest path makers, which I write about in the book, are or Ediacara, Ediacara biota, which are 565 million years old. They know they have fossil trails, which I've gone and seen in Newfoundland, but they we don't think they followed their own trails. So probably the first animals to start following trails, which is really where things get interesting, would be some sort of mollusk. It would probably be someone an animal following slime trails. Uh, along the sea floor, and some mollusks follow them, uh, following others, and others will actually go out and follow their own trail home. There's one type of mollusk which will leave a slime trail, and that trail will actually accumulate uh, a, a type of food that it likes to eat. It's kind of sticky, and it will accumulate the food. And so, on the way home, it will pick up that food, like picking popcorn up off a, you know your trail, like Hansel and Gretel or something. Right. Uh, and that's and then from there, you can start to see how those chemical signaling mechanisms lead to ants and tent caterpillars and all these various animals that use pheromone trails. Tell us about this a little bit about the fossils. Um, I understand that they weren't they weren't following each other. They didn't the, the trails didn't weren't a case of someone follow one animal follow an insect following another, but what what exactly are they and how on earth did they know that they were trails at all? This is, I mean, that's a really difficult question because 565 million years ago is an incredibly long amount of time. It's pre-Cambrian. So we know so little about the pre-Cambrian era. It's really hard to say for certain, but what they think was happening, uh, there's a researcher named Alex Liu who discovered these trails. And his theory is that they had a, a sort of inflatable foot, kind of... Uh, which would expand and then retract. Uh, it, it's called hydrostatic inflation. Should I be picturing something like a worm? It's not like a worm. It would be more like a sea anemone. Um, okay. It, it, most of them would have been rooted Blobbier. actually to the sea yeah. floor. Blobbier right? than a worm. And and just sort of fil- just filtering food through the the water, not not moving at all. Most of them. This is the first one that we know for sure. He's using muscular movement. And so they're just kind of scrunching along the seafloor very, very slowly, very painstakingly. I, I mean, I've seen the trails. I've touched them. You can see the, how slow the movement was because the foot would expand, and then it would retract, and it would move a half an inch, a, a tenth of an inch, and then it would expand again. And in that very slow way, that's that's the first thing we know of. And so how did he find—I mean— 
he it's is it a would you call his uh would you call his discovery a theory or do you is it widely accepted that this is that this is uh scientifically uh uh a, a trail it is there there's a bit of controversy over which is the earliest trail there are uh, there is another group that is claiming to have found the oldest trail although the Evidence is a little bit shakier, and of course, I'm a little bit biased because I've been talking to Alex Liu more than the other researchers, and he's he told me his very likable in the book too. He, yeah, he's he's a great guy, and he's a very smart guy, and and he's done a lot of due diligence to make sure that these trails are not, for example, what they call uh, a, a tilting trace, which is where something will be dragged along by the undersea currents and leave a trace in the soil. Which is there's a whole uh, you know there's a whole field of science which which studies these trace fossils. And he's an extremely meticulous guy, and I, I trust him when he says these are the oldest known animal trails on Earth. When, when did we, when did human beings start to understand how elaborate ant trail, insect trails were? Yeah, this is, a, this is a really interesting story, how we discovered the existence of pheromone trails. Because if you, if you remember being a kid and looking at ant trails, you probably didn't think these are chemical trails that they're leaving and then picking up with their antennae, almost smelling them. It, it, it looks almost magical, right? You can't figure out how they know to follow that line. So if you read back through the, the history of entomology, it, there were a lot of various theories about how they were communicating where the food was and how to find their way back. Some people thought they spoke a sort of antennal language, uh, which actually in, in recent years, there is a bit of evidence in certain species that they are communicating through an, antennae taps. But for the most part, it's these these chemical trails they're leaving. And so the first guy to realize it was uh, a Genevan entomologist named Charles Bonnet, who was only about 18 years old when he first started studying uh, tent caterpillars. It was actually through caterpillars that we discovered that ants leave chemical trails because tent caterpillars leave uh, silk, which the, they will follow. And we now know they actually lace the silk with pheromones. He would disrupt those, these, those trails. He would actually... St- have these caterpillars strewn throughout his room. They would be exploring the walls, exploring the windows, and he would break the trails with his finger and notice they wouldn't travel past the part where his finger had gone. Yeah. And so from that, he, then he got a, a, a nest of ants and he noticed a similar phenomenon. And he was the first person to make the leap, as far as we know, to say, maybe this is a chemical that they're smelling. Maybe they're following it as if, you know, in the similar way to how the caterpillars were following the silk, and it took us a long time to finally confirm that. It was finally confirmed by the famous entomologist E.O. Wilson, right. who went and actually split open a fire ant and pulled out all of their various organs and found this one tiny little organ called the Dufour's gland. And when he smeared that out, he found that the re- reaction from nearby ants was explosive. They'd... And hooray for Monsieur Bonnet, who had been right all along. <laughs> That's right. We're learning about trails and hiking on today's Please Explain. My guest is Robert Moore, who's written a book called On Trails and Exploration. It's published by Simon & Schuster. If you have a question for him, call us at 212-433-9692. You can also write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash lopate or tweet us at Leonard Lopate. We'll hear more after a break. I'm Philip Galanis from The New York Times, in for Leonard Lopate. This is WNYC and WNYC.org. I'm on the top of the world looking down on creation And the only explanation I can find is the love that I found in the 
Hi, it's Philip Galanis from the New York Times, in for Leonard Lopate. I'm here with Robert Moore talking about trails and his book, On Trails, an Exploration. You write that every trail is a best guess, and I thought that was a provocative idea. To what, what exactly do you mean by it? Yeah, what I mean by that is that there's a kind of... Uh, there's a kind of paradox with trails where you you what happens when people share information is that oftentimes if ever if you have a group of people and they're guessing for example how many jelly beans are in a jar what they found is that if everyone guesses separately and doesn't share their information they'll actually when you aggregate all of those together and average them out they'll actually come up with a better guess than if you let the whole group talk to each other and come up with their communal guess of how many jelly beans are in the jar the weird thing about trails is that they make an incredibly uh, – they, they oftentimes find the most efficient route from point A to point B, and yet everyone's kind of sharing their information, right? Because if you're following a trail, you're following someone else's guess of where the best route is. So what the, the best guess theory says is that if you share – if all those people guessing the number of jelly beans in the jar share their best guess with each other, if, if basically you take the best guess out of everyone's guesses, you share it with the next person in the group, and then they guess based off that best guess, it actually gets even better. The guess gets even better than if you just weighted average everyone's together. And that's the magic of trails. Someone goes out – if you imagine you're crossing a field – there are infinite ways you could get from one side of the field to the other, right? There, you could go a little bit to the left. You could go a lot to the left. You go a little bit to the right. You go a lot to the right. The, the, what happens with trails over time is the first person walks, and it really isn't a great trail at first. It's usually full of errors. And then over time, the next person will follow that trail, and they'll shave off a couple of the unnecessary turns. And the next person will walk and shave off a couple of the unnecessary turns. There's actually an anecdote in the book about the physicist Richard Feynman running an experiment in his bathtub where he noticed uh, that there were some ants around and he decided to put a sugar cube on one end of the bathtub and allow the ants to go find the sugar cube and then bring it home. And what he noticed, he would trace each ant as it took its little piece of sugar back home. And with the first trail, it was really wiggly. The second ant follows that trail and he starts making it a little bit sleeker. And the next line is a little bit sleeker after that until eventually he says it was basically a straight line. It's a wonderful story about the living quality of trails. Let us take a call from Ben in New Jersey. Ben, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. Please. We're, we're happy to have you. Uh, so I was sort of thinking about before your speaker mentioned that he likes to go on hikes alone. Um, I've only ever gone on hikes with groups of people from myself and two friends to large, you know, Boy Scout troop hikes. Uh, and I was wondering what your speaker thought about the uh, the difference between hiking alone and hiking with with groups, and what size group you know he might recommend uh, or he's found to be most enjoyable hiking with. 
Yeah, it, 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 it is definitely a different experience hiking by yourself. I have an anecdote in the book about going to Newfoundland to an area called the North Rim Traverse around Western Brook Pond, which is this glacial fjord, and there were no trails there. It was a pathless wilderness, and you had to fight your way through these, these stunted trees called Tuckamore. And you had to navigate using a map and compass. I had no GPS. I had no cell phone. I was completely alone. And as I describe in the book, it really wasn't a whole lot of fun. It was actually kind of terrifying because I, I didn't I, – at every moment, it, all of the pressure was on me to make the decision of where to go. And I would often get very far off course. And then, you, of course, the terror rushes in that you're never going to find your way back. Oh, yeah. That happens to me every on every hike I've ever been on in my life. You go talk often about going with compasses and things like that. Um, so what do you think about Ben's idea? Should should he and I and everyone be out on these trails on our own, or I should think, we? Well, I think it depends on the trail. So if you're going out into a, a wilderness area like the Bob Marshall Wilderness, for example, somewhere that's fairly remote, absolutely go with a group. Uh, I would highly recommend that. I would say keep the group size pretty small. My personal preference, you know, probably five or six people, no more than that. It gets too cumbersome over that number, but. If you're on the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail or someone there that's fa- fairly popular, you can go alone because you'll meet friends along the way. That's one of the the best parts about hiking yeah. the Appalachian Trail is you meet other through hikers and you form this weird little community of oddballs who all have this one thing in common, which is you're all walking the trail. Yeah, together. the Native American guy that is a character in your book who and who who all the other trail hikers rally around to help. It's a very touching story. Let us take a call from Sim in Randolph, New Jersey. Hi, Sim. You are on with Robert Moore. Hi. um, So I just had a question. We are in Morris County in New Jersey, and there is this beautiful park, state park, uh, Hackleberry State Park. So when you enter that place, there is a warning there that there might be bears here and all that. It tells you what to do. But my question was that I somehow feel that I don't have the courage to, I want to explore that place, but if there's a warning of bears, I don't think I have the courage to go in there. Do you have any suggestions as to... Well, I'm sure it's a very rare thing. Yeah, it is a rare thing. You you sh- don't you shouldn't feel nervous about bears, especially black bears, which is what we have here on the East Coast. The only thing you need to be careful about, of course, you can bring bear spray if you want. I live in British Columbia, where we we have lots of bears, and we own bear spray, but we've never used it. Uh, normally, and I would run into bears all the time on the Appalachian Trail. In fact, once uh, going around Nuclear Lake in New York, and they always run away. It almost always. It, statistically, it's it's a very low chance. Although in New Jersey, you do have a lot of bears that have become habituated to people, and they'll go in people's backyards. I'm sure you've seen the videos of them swimming in people's swimming pools. Uh, but the chances of them attacking you are are fairly low. If you see one, just give it its distance. Uh, you, you know, don't provoke it in any way. The thing you really need to be careful about is your food. You need to be careful to hang your food up in a tree uh, about. 15 feet in the air if you can, 10 feet out from the tree trunk if you can. That's what the real problem will be is they'll, they'll take your food. But the right. chances of them attacking you, is, you, it's not really something you need to worry about. This is a very scientific question, Robert. I believe that Yogi Bear of cartoon fame did actually reside in Huckleberry Park. Um, so I wonder if 
Sim is in danger of running into Yogi at any time. I mean, if you have a picnic basket, you should definitely <laughs> watch it. Terrific. Tell us about your experience as a shepherd. I think that is a stupendous thing for a 21st century man to be up to. Yeah, so I went to the Navajo Reservation in Arizona to try and learn about sheep, how they think. I wanted to learn about how groups and herds make collective decisions. And so I thought, what better way than sheep? Sheep are kind of a caricature of a group, right? If someone's a conformist, sure. you call them a sheep. And, and for good reason, they, they flock together. Uh, and I learned a lot of interesting things. But the thing I learned most was that it's really difficult to herd sheep, especially on foot, the way that many Navajo people do. In fact, on my first day, I went out and the sheep uh, basically played a little trick on me, split in half, the flock split in half, and one went in one direction, the other went in the other direction. And I ended up losing all of them on my first day. Fortunately, we found them all uh, later, but it was a very inauspicious start to my yeah, I was very frightened for you. Um, do, do the dogs that are with you when you're a shepherd, do they continuously run in sort of circles around them to help you keep the sheep together? There are certainly dogs that do that. There are many dogs, you know, if you've ever seen a, a, a sheep dog competition in, in Scotland or New Zealand, they have incredibly well-trained dogs that can follow whistles and all sorts of, all sorts of signals. My dogs did not. Did they, not that. They, that was not their purpose. They were not trained in that way. All they could do really is stick with the flock, and if a coyote came by, for example, they could bark at it and chase it and, away. And warn you. Um, you, talked about, um, you talked about your experience as a shepherd or sheep herding as not an exercise in domination as much as a sort of a dance and a negotiation. Um, is that a little bit like trail making, too? It is in a sense. Uh, the yeah. What I meant by that was that you can't really, at least I couldn't force the sheep to go exactly where that you want them to go. You have to sort of mold their movements, and you have to be very keenly aware of where the sheep want to go, what kind of things they want to eat. And as long as you can predict their desires, then you can start to shape their movement, and that's where it becomes analogous. To trail making, one of the most interesting things that I ran across was the the problems that trail builders have, hiking trail builders have, getting people to stick to those trails. Right? If you've ever gone hiking well, in the mountains, exactly. you've seen this. People love to make shortcuts, and yet the the hike the the person who's building that hiking trail needs you to go a certain way so that the water will drain properly off of the trail, so that it will avoid certain areas that have sensitive plant life. They need you to do something that's kind of counter to your instincts, and so. The challenge of the trail builder, which is a challenge for a lot of other people, I think, it, whether it's uh, you know in the environmental movement or various fields, is how do you get people to do what they should do rather than what their first instinct leads them to do? It's interesting. We've had a message on our show page. Robert, do you think GPS is cheating? I, I, <clears throat> I personally do not think that GPS is cheating, although... I don't use Always it personally. A Always it, a well, it's it's just another. I'm a I'm a bit of a fanatic about how much weight I keep in my pack, and that's an extra thing. So the thing is with GPS, uh -huh. and y your reader, your listener probably knows this: is you should never just bring a GPS. You should always bring a GPS and a map and compass because GPS 
will oftentimes or sometimes malfunction. You could get it wet. The batteries could get lost, whatever. And then you're really in trouble. And this is something increasingly that we're getting in trouble with as, uh, you know, as a society is that we're more reliant upon technology than we've ever been before. There was a story recently, a really tragic story about a woman named Geraldine Larguet, I believe her name was. It was in the Washington Post. You may have seen it. She got lost on the Appalachian Trail, and rather than trying to find her way back to the Appalachian Trail, she wandered farther from the trail looking for a cell signal. She was trying to text her husband for SOS, and she ended up wandering off about, about two miles from the trail, couldn't find her way back, cell phone obviously didn't work, ended up sitting there for 26 days and starving to death, and they ended up finding her body in her sleeping bag two miles from the trail. So if she'd had a little bit more wilderness training, a little bit more wilderness savvy, a good map and compass, that wouldn't have happened, and she'd still be alive today, most likely. It's very interesting to think about uh, to think about pure amateurs in uh, like this woman. I'm sure she's no less qualified than I or any of these people she, calling. She had some us. experience. Yeah, yeah, she did have a fair amount of experience, but uh, it's a little dangerous, and it's a little not dangerous. Where and why do you think? the modern trail hiking that we do today where did that origi- where did that originate where does what does the impulse come from yeah that's a really long story but it's an interesting story the 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 very uh, short version of it is that what you see starting in Europe with the romantic movement is that we start to view wild spaces mountain landscapes as being beautiful and being uh, even kind of holy, being invested with a, a divine light. It was it was sublime, was the word they used quite often. And that starts to come over to America in various ways, and one of the most interesting ways is by inspiring people to go out and, and hike mountains, first to find scientific data was one of the most common reasons people would first climb, but then to have experiences, to have raw, vivid wilderness Experiences And that starts really ramps up around the middle to the end of the 19th century. And what you see from there is this is, is an evolving of why we go into the woods. Some people went to get out of the cities. They wanted to go get fresh air. Some people went. There was a big movement of men going to toughen themselves up uh, and especially sending their children away. That's where we get the summer camp movement was this fear that our children were becoming too weak by living in cities. And I think you still see that impulse a little bit today. And then the last was a, a, just a pure love for the environment and a feeling that you were there to commune with nature. Right. And I think that's with us as well. I've been speaking with Robert Moore on today's Please Explain. His book on trails and exploration is published by Simon & Schuster. Robert, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Hey!